Hello and welcome to the Hippocampus podcast, a place where we discuss the strategies that help optimise learning. So join us for some grassroots conversations where we share some practical tips and insights that might just make your learning journey a little easier. In this episode, we discuss mindfulness and are joined by special guest Lara Crowther, who's currently undertaking a PhD in mindfulness and medical education, as well as being a wellness coach, personal trainer and yoga teacher. She shares with us our journey in adopting mindfulness into her daily routine and its role in helping medical students and healthcare professionals through stress reduction and improving well-being. We explore the meaning of mindfulness, what it is and what it isn't, and also some practical strategies to easily implement mindfulness practices into our lives and clinical practice. So let's join the hosts, me, Sophie and Kishan, who are medical students, and Lisa, who is a lecturer in medical education. Okay, hello everyone and welcome back. How are we all doing? Hello. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Sophie. Hi. Not bad, not bad. Good. Had a good week, guys? Yeah, really good week. It's been quite exhausting, but um, yeah, it's been really, really good. The end is in sight almost at the end of this block of placement. <laughs> yeah, coming up to Christmas now. I've got my Christmas t-shirt on. <laughs> got the tree well, let's have a look at your Christmas well. t-shirt. Oh, yeah. Hey. So, oh yeah cool i feel and, underdressed uh, I, know. I got the tree up last week as well but this week i just really? thought we could do some yeah I, I, it's a bit premature but i thought why not we could all there's do no some rules, uh, cheering up there's no rules i like that <laughs> right so we're really excited to have another amazing guest with us this week lara crowther Lara's currently studying a PhD in mindfulness and medical education at the University of Leicester. Alongside that, she's also a wellness coach, personal trainer and yoga teacher. Lara, hello and welcome. Hello, everyone. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So um, first off, could you just start by um, telling us a little bit more about yourself and your background and how you first came to be interested in mindfulness and well-being? Yeah, so really, I'll go, I'll go back to the beginning. Um, I, I've always been interested in health and well-being, always did a lot of exercise. Um, and then I decided to study psychology and neuroscience at university um, I went and did that and then went on to study postgraduate neuroscience research for a few years and then decided actually I I wanted to study medicine um, and ended up coming to graduate medicine at Leicester. From then, um, I actually left medicine uh, with a year to go to have a baby with every intention of coming back. But as life goes, it doesn't always work out the way you think it will. So I ended up thinking about how I could raise a family while still having interests in health and well-being. And I was kind of exploring how my own health and well-being had been affected by both my time at med school and actually after the birth of my son and how I'd neglected really myself during that time and how I could get myself back on track. And I fell into a real interest with food, which I saw have a really big impact in my mental health actually and that that sparked off a real interest in in holistic health and how much actually I'd gone I'd gone to medical school and neglected that holistic side so I got back on into that and I I did some nutrition qualifications and trained as a personal trainer became a yoga teacher and that's really how I got into mindfulness 
I, I should probably add that mindfulness isn't something that I naturally came to or that I, I found easy at all. In fact, my, my husband still laughs because I spent nearly a decade berating him for his his kind of mindfulness practice and saying what a load of rubbish it was so for those people that you know perhaps um students that come to come to Leicester and find mindfulness on the curriculum and at first kind of are a bit skeptical I was that skeptic um and it took me one two three four five attempts at mindfulness and, and entering it by a you know a myriad of different ways to actually find it accessible for me so that's that's a really important thing is that um to find a variety and find what works for you and and that's really where we are now when i saw the phd advertised it just seemed to fit with what i was doing in in my private life and kind of the benefits i was seeing with my one-to-one clients um that i was seeing as a as a health coach um, and I thought, actually, yeah, it'd be lovely to go back to Leicester. And I was really excited that they'd got this programme and that they were investing in the mental health of, of the medical students. And so that's that's why I'm here, really. Amazing. That's such an interesting journey. So we've already used the term a few times, mindfulness. Um, for anyone listening that doesn't already understand what that term might mean, could you just kind of define what it means or what it means for you? Yeah, so um, I think everyone's everyone's really aware of of the standard um, John Kabat-Zinn definition of mindfulness, and that was actually something that that I, how I came to view mindfulness as well. And it's only since my PhD, where I've been investigating it a bit further and going deeper with my own practice, where you you become aware of how many different defini- definitions for mindfulness there is. I think in one paper. I find I found 32 different definitions in one paper. Um, so they all have a slightly different angle that is, is encompassing this, the same kind of uh, qualities, really. So I'll, I'll go through um, the John Kabat-Zinn definition of paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And I think if you're experiencing mindfulness and, and you're practicing, that makes perfect sense. But if you're going into your first foray into mindfulness and you're reading from a book, that doesn't necessarily mean that much to you. I actually just want to read a definition, a new definition that I came across that really helped me. And actually, I can use it now to explain a bit better to other people. So mindfulness, a natural, trainable human capacity to bring attention and awareness to all experiences. It is equally open to whatever is present in a given moment with attitudes of curiosity, friendliness, compassion and discernment in the service of suffering less, enjoying greater well-being and leading a meaningful, rewarding life. I think what what I pick out there that that it's natural, trainable, it's something that it might not feel that natural to people when they come across it, but actually this is something that's open for everyone. It's something that actually we have within us and cultivate the skills to enhance that ability that we already naturally have. And I know I hear I hear a lot of people, especially doctors actually, that say, I can't do mindfulness, I've tried it, it's hard, and actually I can't I can't turn off and I can't do it. But and it and it's it's kind of it's kind of explaining that really it's not about turning off, it's not about getting rid of thoughts. 
another piece out of this that's really important is the attitude in which you practice. So those beautiful things, curiosity, friendliness, compassion, the way in which we practice, our intention with our practice is so important. Leading a meaningful, rewarding life. Well, I think most of us would say our definitions of leading a meaningful, rewarding life aren't just for self. They extend to everyone else as well. So I just think that's a really nice way of um, kind of piquing people's interest in mindfulness a bit more than just the standard definition. I really like how you said, um, Laura, that, you know, on your journey throughout this time, you said that you had this longitudinal passion for health and wellness and you started out with sort of neuroscience and then you went into medicine. But you, you said you found that you neglected yourself and you had to get yourself back on track. And then it seems as though you turn into sort of nutrition, personal training, yoga and mindfulness. And what I'm interested in is sort of when did it sort of click for you that mindfulness was actually helping? Were you kind of actively seeking out mindful practices or did you sort of realise that you were doing that? in order to get back on sort of track? Yeah, so as I, I tried to explain in the beginning, I, I, I didn't get on with mindfulness when I first started. And I think yeah. it depends what your motivation for doing it, um, who's recommending it and why, and whether you've got that intrinsic motivation to do it. So my first exposure was probably through mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression, actually. Um, and I think I wasn't in a space where I was open and receptive to it. And, and I would stress to people, especially in, in courses, really, that, that are mandatory, that you've got to be really careful there, that you don't um, push people away from something quite valuable by um, making it compulsory because it's very much got to be something that comes from the individual and they've got to be ready to be open to it, to find it helpful. Right. So that was my first exposure. And then I, I kind of investigated mindfulness-based stress reduction as well. And I've been on a eight week course. And at the time that didn't really appeal to me at all. And I kind of put mindfulness aside and I carried on doing all the other things that I do to maintain my well-being. And exercise and, and food is are two of my main things that I still do. And it's it's really important to my well-being. But the yoga was my turning point for understanding actually what was what was trying to be taught to me in those other programs that for some reason just wasn't clicking. And I think what they say in yoga is the practice begins when you want to come out of the pose. And that was it for me. It was the realization that you can you can come to things and it's sitting with whatever it is, even if it's uncomfortable. So we have a real tendency, don't we, to cling to the nice things and avoid and push away the bad things. And that's human nature. And we all do it. And why wouldn't we want to feel nice all the time? And there's a real chase for happiness at the moment. You see it, don't you? You know, um, it's kind of frowned upon to be sad and, and to show those emotions, but you can't have one without the other to have that full human experience. So I think yoga showed me that. It showed me sitting, being fully aware of the mind-body connection and sitting with those uncomfortable physical feelings that you get when you're in a posture 
that's actually really uncomfortable, but you're being told to, or, or being encouraged to stay in that, stay in that, be curious about that. Think about what, what is it that's making you feel uncomfortable? What's the quality of that? And that curiosity. And that was what made me realize that's what I need to do with my emotions as well. And that's really what, what the clicking was. Right. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like a, a real manifestation of the same experience through yoga rather than a real life experience that we encountered in a day to day format. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that there are things that I do daily that other people think are quite mad. So, for example, one example of where I purposely put myself through discomfort every day is my post box is at the end of a gravel drive and I purposely go barefoot along the gravel every morning to get the post. The first time you do this, you're like, oh, 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 all the way, you know, and it's horrible. And you think, and everyone's looking at you like, why didn't she just put a pair of shoes on? Um, and but the more you do it, you totally get habituated to that discomfort. It's, it's very strange. So now I can just trot along, get the post and trot back. It's being aware while you do that. So there's been a long process from the out, out, out every step to the, not really feeling it at all and it's it's lending yourself that curiosity to to feel your feel your feet going across that what is that is it actually pain is it tolerable what happens if I stop and I just kind of allow myself to feel that and actually I, I apply that to my kind of mental struggles as well so it's, it's about as much as because I sort of often when I've kind of thought about it I thought it's I thought about it probably completely the wrong way in terms of, oh, I need to be focusing on, you know, the positive things and and, and that's going to make me feel better. And actually it's not, it's, it's actually shining a spotlight on the things that are challenging and that are upsetting and, and deconstructing that, isn't it? Rather than ignoring or <laughs> struggling okay. through. Now, that's really interesting because if we go back to that definition, it's about being present with what is. So the first thing to do is just to pay attention to what is um, and let those thoughts come and go and not attach to the good, not attach to the bad. They are just what they are. And then and that's kind of and then you, what we usually do is we focus on a, a, on a point. So it might be our breath and that's focused attention. And then we might move on to, OK, so it'd be nice to be able to shift my attention at will. So not being distracted by lots of things, being able to say, actually, now I need to pay attention to this. There's five things vying for my attention, but I can purposefully select what I want to pay attention to. So, Lisa, what you were saying about kind of paying attention to the positives. For me, I suppose it's, well, if I'm going to take joy from the positives, I need to be able to experience what it's like voluntarily to experience the negatives as well so for me it's not it's not a necessity that you do that but for me it's helpful to get the whole human experience yeah yep. so it's fine to it's fine to find the joy in the good things as well absolutely and mindfulness has had a huge impact in my kind of gratitude for simple really simple things that I'd never even thought about before um, so there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. It should be encouraged. But sometimes it's it's really interesting to see your own reaction 
when you purposely invite something discomforting in. Yeah, absolutely. Now, your your PhD kind of isn't just on mindfulness, it's relating to medical education as well. So why do you think there's starting to be this move towards focusing on mindfulness and well-being in medical students and students in general? How can they benefit from mindfulness? Yeah, so I think we've got two things that have arisen in parallel, really. We've got a massive interest in mindfulness worldwide, not just for students and medical students, but there's been a rush of research, especially, I mean, I think in between 93 and 95, there was one RCT between those years on mindfulness. Between 2013, 2015, that was that number was 216 RCTs. So the amount of research being done in this is massive. So on one side, we've got this growing body of evidence saying that mindfulness can, and it's been touted as, you know, a cure-all, which has its own issues, obviously, as well, and has come under a lot of scrutiny. Um, so we, we're getting this information. Mindfulness can reduce our stress. Mindfulness can reduce our depression, anxiety. It can impact on burnout, fatigue. And the other side, we've got um, the GMC being flagged. You know, we have got we are hemorrhaging doctors. Um, there is huge rates of stress in our medical students, burnout in our doctors. Uh, junior doctors aren't going straight onto specialist training because they're so burnt out already. We need to address this. And there's been a real call um, and a call for action, really, that medical schools need to address this stress. Um, and with this rise in mindfulness reduces stress, they've put the two and two together and they've, they've come kind of collided at the same time. And that's been, I think, the kind of frequent rush we're seeing now. That said, there are some medical schools around the world that have been using mindfulness in their curriculum you know for 20 30 years and i think that's probably not as well known but that that's been going on in the states and and in australia for that long mm. of which you know our program in leicester has been taken from australia and that program has been running since the late 90s for our listeners we've got a health enhancement program which like laura said is is based of a, a, a model in australia and I've personally found it really useful because I've come from another background of I've been a healthcare professional as an optometrist and I've worked in a in a work environment and this was never part of my formal education both at sort of graduate level or at sort of college or at school it only kind of came through family practices or uh, perhaps religious ones rather than formal teaching ones and I've really found that it's been very helpful for me because it is something which is trainable like you know the definition says and I think you know the earlier it comes into our courses then the more natural it becomes. Just to, to add and ask on a point you made earlier Lara about the fact that there's been a few medical schools uh, you mentioned in on Australia and America that have been running programs for for, for decades really is is there evidence is there research coming out of that that's actually demonstrating an impact of, of mindfulness as an intervention because you know often is the case in you know sort of educational research it's really really difficult to demonstrate 
sort of impact and outcome in a, in a sort of really objective and sort of quantifiable way? Yes, the answer is yes, there is. Obviously, you know, I, I've i just conducted a scoping review with my supervisors on the quality of the qualitative evidence that's coming out because there is masses of quantitative evidence actually about mindfulness on stress reduction depression and anxiety are the three main areas where you know there are statistical significant results so um yes that is well known the problem we have is because of the nature of mindfulness and that it's really taught as a self-selected group is that those results are by and large, um, based on Western white female students that opt to do this, which makes what makes the research we're doing here in Leicester quite exciting because we do have such a diverse population. And as a mandatory course, we can investigate, you know, how, you know, who is this working for? You know, there's no, there's no good as introducing this to 300 culturally diverse students if it only works for white women of a certain age um, that elect to do it mm-hmm. um, so we have to be really careful when we're evaluating these studies that we're looking we're really looking at but who is this working for and, and how is this being introduced and trying to find the optimum ways in which we can bring this in mm-hmm. and actually maybe there has it, it, it's been kind of questioned as how do we measure mindfulness for a start it's all right you know doing perceived stress scales and depression scores and all those things but how do we really know it's because of mindfulness or even how we measure mindfulness in someone so there has been a call for more qualitative work which which i would agree with actually because for me the stress reduction Yes, that's important, but it's really, yes, we're lowering stress. How does mindfulness reduce stress? Is it is it that it's making us better listeners? Is it that it's helping us form better relationships? Is it that we're bonding more with our peers? Is this is this because of the group dynamic that is formed in these in these groups? Is it mindfulness or is it the situation that we're putting these students in? Is it that we're allowing to, them to talk about personal problems, which in MedEd you just don't do? We're allowing them to be vulnerable with each other. In, in, in fact, for, you know, for the first time, we're saying we're encouraging that. You know, we're allowing them to share those problems with each other and, uh, and kind of encouraging them to share those problems when really we all know in the background how competitive medicine is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know from from day one so it's yeah yeah sort of lots of variables to uh <laughs> to yeah. account for as to yeah what what is actually sort of driving the the improvements as you said in sort of anxiety depression and stress levels yeah mm-hmm. yeah from a personal perspective i really liked how just when we had our sessions with health enhancement we call hep it's just like you could sit in a circle and take your shoes off if you want to put your books away and just relax and whatever we did that session the it was almost like um I was in a different place because you know every other day was like this journey to becoming a doctor and it's quite stressful and it's quite intense psychologically you've got to be sort of on it all the time because things move so fast and content is just piling up and then there's competition that's happening and I think that break and having it encouraged by the staff and and just seeing everybody and it was quite surprising that we were all encouraged to kind of switch off 
and go the other way. Um, I think it was really refreshing and, but it was just really nice to have some encouragement to kind of focus on yourself and focus on your own well-being rather than focus on all of these external, you know, mm. knowledge, facts, performance and on all of the other things. It was Yeah, I think I think also just reflecting on what I said about what what it is driving it. Um and, and whether if we'd have put students in these groups, how I think there is something in when we're teaching mindfulness it's that attitudinal thing it's that um coming with curiosity friendliness compassion discernment to relieve suffering and actually those are the qualities that the teacher brings also to that group and that's something that we don't get in all medical education teaching and it's what students aren't expecting when they come to medical school either and we, we would hope that all medical educators came with kindness and compassion for students. But there's something about mindfulness that kind of flags that to students. You know, if our, if our teachers are teaching this, then there's kind of this perception that, oh, actually, they're quite nice people, probably. Um, and, and maybe we can share a bit more with them and maybe we can open up a bit here. Yeah, as well. It was it was nice to see the more skeptical students starting the the program you could almost see them kind of get more comfortable throughout the process so they'd start off and they wouldn't really engage and then they kind of took that lead from their tutors and their peers that were engaging with it and they started to contribute more in sessions and they were willing to read out their reflections and things like that but what I mean what would your advice be for students that do find it hard I know some people say they find it hard to just sit down and be with their own thoughts for five minutes I think probably when you're starting keep it short students medical students in particular under so much pressure and so much work to do can't spend 40 minutes meditating every day so it's being realistic about what one you're willing to do what you think you can do at that time and that will that will differ every day and not to beat yourself up about that there'll be days when it is easier than others there'll be days when there's no shutting off from thoughts and they just keep coming and actually it doesn't settle down and it's it's kind of be that's where the self-compassion comes in kind of recognizing that being light with it actually kind of laughing along with those thoughts saying oh you know here you are again hi nice to see you again you can go if you want oh no you don't want to go you know just having a bit of fun with yourself rather than berating yourself for not being able to get rid of these intrusive thoughts or, or just general distractions there is something in trying to get past that point of discomfort because it's like when you go on a run um I always think and I hate running I'll admit now but I always think the first 10 minutes are the worst. Um, and that's when I'm actually most likely to give up. It's when I find it the hardest. It's getting going. It's getting my breathing in sync. You know, my breathing is a mess. I am I feel like I've run 10 miles in those first 10 minutes. It's, it's a hard slog. Um, but actually, once I, if I can get it in my head, you know, Lara, once you pass those 10 minutes, the next you know 20 minutes or even the next five minutes 
you know you don't have to make these arbitrary judgments of where you've got to be but after those 10 minutes you know you're gonna you know you're gonna find it a bit easier so persevere through that kind of uncomfortableness and it's the same with with mindfulness meditation actually when you really want to get up off the mat or off your bed or wherever you're doing it give yourself just a few extra moments past that point and if after that you're still struggling that day let it go go up go up go and do something else you know go and do a bit of informal mindfulness if you want go and um go for a walk go and go and have a barefoot walk outside and just focus on your feet and, and where you're going and those sensations. You don't have to sit on your mat, sit on your mat to uh, practice mindfulness. So be, be kind to yourself. And um, that's the main message really. Perfect. Yeah. Um, and on that same vein, I guess we wanted to talk a little bit about practical strategies that students can implement in their day-to-day lives that will kind of help on their mindfulness journey and also like protect their, mental well-being like other ways that people might not be familiar with yeah so I think for you guys there's I know some students have said to me oh why don't they just give us a subscription to Headspace you know what's the point of us all sitting in a room doing this and I know apps I'll let you into a secret that I've never used an app for mindfulness ever it doesn't work for me but I'm aware that it works for some and I think it's explore different kind of avenues to get there try the apps if, if you think they would help you but I think a really good way for you at medical school and not just for your mindfulness but it will help just with keeping you as a little close-knit community is having a mindfulness group that's led by one of your peers even so I'm sure there is a member on the HEP team that would be more than happy to train up some medical students so that they can then lead their own practices with other students and that would be a great way to keep it going ways that you can do it in your daily life so even now you're on the wards it's like say you're in GP and you're just about to go and see patients you have very small windows to practice you can't sit there and have your meditation practice while you're in GP you know we all know that it's unrealistic and don't even start me about what you do in A&E but there are things you can do in A&E so back to kind of your GP when you've got your next patient before you even move to your next patient take a moment to kind of and and you won't have time for the three minute breathing space even three seconds just take those three seconds just to breathe and reset and just one or two breaths is enough for you to be able to let go of that previous patient let go of all that because the next patient, you have to reset to neutral again. You cannot take whatever's gone in that previous consultation. And it might not have been a bad one. It might actually have been a joyful one. But your next consultation may not be. You, you might have to break news, bad news in the next consultation. So you've got to be able to get yourself back in that neutral to welcome whatever comes in that moment with non-judgment. So you can't bring judgments from the last one into the new one so take those few breaths some of the doctors I talked to use the door the door handle technique when they get up to welcome a new patient they will pause on the door handle connect with it actually feel the sensations and it's it's as simple as that before calling their next patient other people might um, purposefully walk to get their next patient and instead of just marching along with it in your head or oh, what forgot next, it's so-and-so with so-and-so. It's actually 
make that a walking meditation to collect your next patient connect your feet to the floor how does that feel those just connecting with those steps as you walk to collect your next patient so really simple things um that you kind of think oh they sound really silly um but when you try them and when you 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 repetitively do them you can then see the the results i really like that because you know when you you actually now we've been on the wards and we're looking around i actually see people doing that a lot but it tends to be when things go horribly wrong that people naturally will be like i need to take a moment take a breath or if they're very stressed and i've done it myself you know when i'm feeling really tired or stressed or something's gone wrong we always do that don't we we try and reset to neutral like you said try and wipe the slate clean and get back to this non-judgmental present state but it doesn't happen enough like I'm just reflecting personally I don't do it enough when things haven't gone terribly wrong when they've gone well or when they're just sort of normal and I think if I did that more frequently more regularly irrespective of what's just happened I think you know I think I wouldn't get to a point where I have to do it you know when it's all gone terribly wrong and I think I could do it more frequently in all forms of like whether it's a consultation or I've just gone and done a procedure with a patient on a ward or I've just uh, spoken to a consultant or anything I think just having that ability to reset to neutral irrespective of what's happened I think would be really helpful I didn't even I've got one thing I want to share with you all because I'm being reminded I just wanted to say a really good example that I've remembered from my days a long time ago is um, how we can use it for exams and in OSCEs and stuff. And it's actually an example of when it wasn't used and it should have been. And what's triggered my thinking is um, Kish in the background, the skeleton. <laughs> and uh, it was actually someone, someone in one of the medical students in my cohort that went to the OSCE and was asked, um, walked in, walked into the room and was asked to um, do a respiratory exam. And obviously in the room, there's, um, there was a skeleton, there was the patient on the bed and there was the examiner. The examiner had, had put the, ske- the uh, stethoscope over the skeleton. Anyway, student had come in and the examiner said, please, could you do a spiritual exam of, of this patient for me? And the student had recognized, seen the, the stethoscope on the skeleton and started doing the exam on the skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, went through it and, and the examiner was really intrigued and, and said, kind of let her do it. And then he said, oh, I'm curious, what, what could you hear? And she said, normal breath sounds. And then he was like, oh, okay, okay, well, Shall we do it again with this, with with the patient on the bed? He actually and, has lungs. <laughs> yeah, and um, and the and the student was absolutely mortified. So I think it was an example there of when stress takes hold in exams. Yeah. Before you go in, take those breaths, reset yourself, go in, <laughs> and actually, when you've been asked a question by the examiner, examiner, then take that space again to process that question take a minute look around get rational about what's being asked and what what's the most feasible way to address it (laughs) but 
actually what's more important than the student showing a bit of unmindfulness there is actually the attitude of the examiner was very mindful. There could have been a real disaster there. He could have just outright, if he was um, high stress, angry, resentful, he could have outright just failed that student. Um, He could also have said, he could have also kind of taken the mickey out of her and, and been really quite cruel and said, you know, in front of the patient, why are you examining a skeleton? What are you expecting to hear? He didn't do that. He he kind of brought lightness to it, a bit of humour, and actually gave her the chance to calm down and do it properly. And I think that's an example of of where being mindful helps helps both parties. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I would like to claim that story for myself, but it's not mine. But it's not because I didn't do ridiculous thing in Oscar. Well, I did. <laughs> <laughs> How about, obviously, we're living in crazy times at the moment, Lara, with COVID and everything that's going on. And you see it all over the news about how there's a mental health crisis. And are there any tips you'd have for someone who's struggling maybe with isolation or with the kind of solitary feelings of learning online at the moment? Yeah, I mean, from a mindfulness perspective, I think we we have to be realistic about we're not going to be able to just think, oh, you know, this is this has got really bad. What what can I do that's going to erase all that anguish of COVID? Um, I'm going to start a mindfulness practice and expect that that's going to solve all our problems. But I think there are things with isolation as well. I know that there's been a big drive in the mindfulness community to put on lots of mindfulness sessions online and especially for healthcare workers at the moment. So I know if you looked at the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, um, and that might be worth kind of flagging to, to students and staff, actually, they're running um, kind of sessions for staff. I think they're free because they're acutely aware of, 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 what, of what healthcare staff are going through at the moment. And actually, it, it's quite nice just to be in a space with other people that are going through what you're going through and being able to share those struggles and to so that the thing with mindfulness and that the reason why I much prefer group mindfulness than recommending people individually practice with apps is that it's not particularly the mindfulness exercise that has this effect on us it's quite often the mindful inquiry that goes on after that in the group um, and what that brings out from everybody and what that sharing from someone else can light up in you and give you permission to share your truth, if that makes sense. So often there's, you'll see it when, when you're in a mindful group at, at first, no one will speak and it will be all very quiet. And then suddenly some very courageous person, because it is really courageous to take part in these groups, I have to say, will come out with something quite profound sometimes. And it's that, kind of recognition that we're all in the same boat we do we don't talk about this but actually that person has actually summed up everything I'm feeling in that moment and sometimes that's all we need to deal with our stress we need to feel like we're not failing this is not something that's individual to us this is something that us as a group doing this hard work that takes a lot from us in order to serve other people 
takes its personal toll. And actually, I don't think doctors are encouraged to, and it's not that you should dwell on, on how it's affecting you, but to acknowledge that and to acknowledge that actually you're worthy of some compassion and some kindness and, and, and some time for someone else to listen to you actually so that's where mindfulness groups can be can be really helpful yeah I think uh, healthcare professionals in general as well can be really bad at kind of knuckling down and thinking oh I can't complain about this you know there's an element of I signed up for this and I guess if one positive thing can be taken out of this pandemic is it's it's not seen as so shameful to share that you're struggling and maybe that's brought a lot of teams together to be able to discuss that and open up about their experiences. And hopefully that will continue going forward. Absolutely. Because I really do think that, like you said, uh, Sophie and Laura, like group mindfulness, it's like compared to doing it by yourself. Because if you do it by yourself, then you're protecting your own sort of mental well-being, which is all well and good. But in a hospital and in a team, sometimes you're weathered down by your colleagues and the relationships you have with each other and I think if you do it in a group then you're automatically so much more compassionate towards each other it really would allow everybody to kind of feel a lot more sympathetic towards each other and I think improve the whole culture within a group because there shouldn't be an element of shame if somebody is struggling mentally and maybe as students I recommend it to my clinical group which is there's five of us and uh, maybe we can do it something like that once a week that would be great if you could set the ball rolling um <laughs> you know I think that yeah. would be great yeah go on Kish. yeah and they're all uh, they're all up for it honestly like because uh, we were talking about this episode um a couple of days ago and Someone did actually mention, I think it's, a, it's called a Schwartz round, where is one of my friends who's working at a psychiatric hospital and the team used to have sort of once a week, they used to group reflect and have these sort of group sessions. And he said it, he was part of that and he said it was really helpful. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, tying it into what you said and what you said as well, Sophie, I think from next week we'll be starting this <laughs> and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> You could invite your consultants to take part too. I would love to. I think uh, I think we should. Yeah, why not? What's the worst that can Why happen? not? Why not? Yeah. Is, is there much being done? Obviously, there's work being done sort of in the undergraduate area and obviously you know, enthusiastic students like Kish that, that want to really sort of take yeah. it forward with their peers. You know, what's the kind of sort of reception and uptake around the sort of postgraduate areas? I think it largely depends on whether you've got champions of mindfulness in, in, in your medical school and beyond in the hospital. So um, we obviously have some enthusiastic teachers here at Leicester that have been doing, you know, this is the fifth year they've been teaching this. And we've got a, a cohort that have stuck all the way through. So we've got some passionate people here. It's finding, it's gifting them time to bring it to postgraduates, I think, and also fitting it in with timetables and training and all that. And actually, I've been asked, not not actually in medicine, but for postgraduate researchers to do kind of one-off sessions for things. And I'm really disinclined to do that. I'm very conscious that there's a lot of people that do introduce these 
kind of one-off sessions for well-being to tick the well-being box but really it's to kind of say well we've done our bit and actually if you can't cope then that's because you don't have any resilience and that's kind of you know we've done our bit the impressive thing about the medical school is they have given their six weeks of curriculum time which we all know is really hard to fight for time for for bits and bobs and getting new things in and and where are they going to fit in so the fact that this has been given that actually says there's been there's been support from the top and that's really important and that that really needs to be across and across the university as a whole we really need this to be not just for medicine, not just for healthcare. This needs to be something that is valuable for all students. And actually, I would argue these programs aren't just for students. Staff should be able to take part in these. There's a big question mark on whether HEP should be mandatory or not. But even if we have select courses for staff, students across the board that they can come to on a regular basis or even drop-in sessions, you know, for, for a really experienced mindfulness teacher that works in the department to say you know every Monday at half eight in the morning before everyone starts work I'm going to be in room whatever um doing my own practice you are more than welcome to join me and we can you can uh, we can have a mindful inquiry afterwards and the more the merrier totally agree you know that it needs champions doesn't it it needs people who who know what they're talking about when it comes to introducing mindfulness and it not being just something that becomes tick box exercise. Um, yeah. So what's really interesting, and I think it's it's worth saying, is that mindfulness without ethics isn't mindfulness. So we use lots of people say, well, what's the difference between mindfulness and attention training? And it's that ethical component and that that kind of kind of right intention both from the practitioner, but also the people that implement these programs is really important. Organisations that introduce mindfulness in a way to acquiesce their employees, that's not mindfulness because you're not approaching mindfulness with the right intention. Um, So we have to be very careful and teachers have to be very clear and actually have to say no when what they're being asked to do doesn't fit in with those ethical standpoints so no there's a lot of issues with the demands that working say in the national health service place on people and a lot of the stresses and demands are unreasonable and coming at it from the standpoint of well we just need to make doctors nurses healthcare professionals more resilient is not addressing the underlying issue um it's almost kind of like you say it runs the risk of of placing the blame somewhere else Mm. um and that if we aren't resilient because we don't do x y and z then that's why we struggle that's why people drop out and it's not there's a bigger there's a bigger picture isn't there that that this kind of fits into yeah so i mean my research i interview staff and students and although it's very focused on mindfulness there's a theme coming out that just can't be ignored and it's um the system we hear it every day don't we you know you can't fix people you've got to fix the system and my question is you know what is this system you know it's it's not some mythical beast that's out to get us the system is made up of people um and actually we we are part of this system so mindfulness isn't here 
to make us put up with things at all and no real mindfulness teacher would ever go into teaching it for those purposes so when they say you know it's there to change you it is there to change you but there's nothing there's nothing kind of stopping us putting these programs in at every different level of that system to change everybody and actually it's our interactions with each level of that system that will change the system so you know you might everybody seems to have a they when you ask them well who who's the system and it'd be oh them you know they're in control of whatever so for students it might be well yeah I appreciate they put mindfulness in for my well-being but this whole attendance policy whoever's come up with attendance we can only have 10 days and I've been off and this affects my well-being and no one so they they and then if you ask you know the people that have come up with these policies who are they under pressure from who is their they and then when you go up to the top of the medical school well who's their they and it just goes on and on and on and actually we have to reflect on what what's our role on how are we affecting everybody else up and down the chain and it's really reflecting on 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 your own role really in that system yeah no that makes perfect sense. Cool. yeah it's really like it's really profound isn't it because we talk about resilience and i think nowadays like with the new wave of students coming through i can honestly speak to any of my peers whoever they are and i think nobody really holds this view that we should be resilient against the system which is against us and only the best survive and I think it's really apparent how infectious something like this is but I'm not as confident to talk to my seniors about not being resilient enough to withstand the pressures of like today I was in HDU and ITU and it was very intense at times Um, and I tried to be as like brave as I could and I really enjoyed it to be honest but I wouldn't be able to, like, I still don't feel confident to say that to some of the consultants or some of the seniors who have obviously been through a lot in their lives to get to the point that they're at. Whereas I'm very confident and comfortable to speak to other students or people even older than me, but of a similar kind of mindset. And I think I just take it for, you know, naturally that I don't even, I don't, I've not even met them before, but they, they share the same view as me. And I, I think the role mindfulness has there is that when we gain that ability to show ourselves self-compassion, we can then put ourselves in the position of those people, like those consultants that actually, they never got the opportunity to be vulnerable with, with their peers and, and, and with their colleagues. And while you feel like you're at the bottom of the pile, actually, there's a lot you can bring to them. Um, and, and I was I was genuinely really 100% being honest with you invite your consultants to these groups you know ask yeah. them if they'd like to humor them a bit you know um, or say humor me you know come, come and have a look come because it's something that they've probably never had access to or been invited yeah. to or something that's never even come into their mind and, and their perception of what mindfulness is might be completely like we've said there's so many um kind of misperceptions of mindfulness so maybe not label it as mindfulness maybe you know 
think of another name for it and invite them along and say, you know, we're, we're team building. We're doing a team building exercise. Would you like to come and see what it's all about? So there are ways of kind of embracing people that perhaps even the term mindfulness just kind of sends them right off. Um, and remembering that consultants are a human too and, and, yeah. and they're suffering, actually. They're suffering probably even more than you um, because their responsibility at the moment is so massive they probably haven't cultivated as much self-compassion as perhaps you who've had these trainings in this um, and they're probably desperate for people to be kind to them in all honesty so it's it's yeah. kind of showing showing compassion to anyone you come across showing kindness to anyone that you come across even if their response to you might not be that pleasant you know trying to take a step back and say I can take a step back and react differently to you independently of how you react to me and it can diffuse a lot there's such a hierarchy isn't there and compassion mm-hmm. has no hierarchy there is no levels of that because we're mm-hmm. all people whereas in an institution that like any organization requires some form of hierarchy because there's a there's a difference in skill level and there's a difference in responsibility. And when you're doing things, it has to sort of have that structure. And then hopefully as well, if we can kind of fix a system, so you say from the ground up, we can kind of use the tools that we learn in our generation to help. Instead of letting it just trickle down, we can feed into the system above us as well. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a really uh, powerful point to kind of end on. So we'll move on to our final segment of the show, our recommendations of the week. So Lara, I think you have a recommendation you'd like to share first. Yeah, so I, th- I thought it'd be nice from um, the second definition I gave you, that one that seemed to sum it up a bit, a bit more easily for everyone. So it's taken from a book. It's called Mindfulness, Ancient Wisdom Meets Modern Psychology. And it's written by Christina Feldman and Willem Kuyken, who's actually the professor at the Oxford Mindfulness Centre as well. So they're the ones running running these courses for healthcare professionals. So he wrote this book along with Christina, who's a, a meditation teacher. Willem is a clinical psychologist, actually. Um, he's so honest in this book. They're both so honest in their book about their own personal experiences, how they've come to come to come across mindfulness and actually this mindfulness has become their life's work um so they've been working in this area for decades and he's actually the the first kind of professor of mindfulness i think at, at oxford so it's a great book it's really accessible and it has lots of case studies in as well so you can read about how patients with different things there's one with addiction chronic pain depression Uh, post-traumatic stress so you can really get some sense of how you can use this with different types of patients and how it's valuable and how it's working so yeah I I think that's going to be my recommendation amazing great stuff we'll uh, leave a link to that in the uh, show notes and also another recommendation I mean we have touched on the fact that they're not the the kind of be all and end all of mindfulness but it is worth checking out headspace and car maps and similar ones like that i know a lot of them offer a student membership or discount of some sort so i'll just add quickly a really good one is insight timer um, and it's free 
So that brings us to the end of our uh, third episode of season two. We'd like to say a massive thank you to our guest, Laura, again, for sharing her thoughts and advice. Thank you very much for having me. I've had a, a great time. And as always, a big thank you to all you listening at home too. So bye for now. And don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and give us a follow on Instagram at the Hippocampus Podcast or Twitter at Hippocampus underscore pod. And if you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for future discussion, please send us an email at the Hippocampus Podcast at gmail.com. Bye for now.